Isaiah chapter number 6 this morning. If the Lord will let us, I'd like to start a short series. I like short series. On throne room experiences. In the Word of God, there are times when the believer is drawn into the throne room. I'm thankful this morning that there is a throne room. I'm thankful there is a throne. And I'm thankful there's somebody that sits on that throne. There's a lot of thrones in this world, but I'm thankful that the King of Kings also has the throne of thrones. I'm thankful that you and I, as redeemed, blood-washed, born-again, forgiven sinners, made perfect by the blood of Christ, we can enter into the throne room. There's times when we go into the throne room. There's times when we're drawn into the throne room. Sometimes, like a young person being called into the principal's office, we get summoned. Amen? Sometimes, uh, like a worker that has done particularly well and is summoned into the boss's office for commendation, uh, we get summoned into the throne room. And then sometimes, like a child running to his daddy's knees for help, we ourselves go into the throne room. In the Word of God, I want to preach over the next three Sundays, if the Lord will let us, and, uh, you know, it's uh, He don't change direction, but sometimes He changes my direction, so we'll just prayerfully try to follow Him. But I want to preach to you about three throne room experiences. In Hebrews chapter number 4, we're told about the throne room of grace. I'm thankful that the throne room is a throne room of grace. I'd never see the inside of that throne room if it wasn't a throne room of grace. If it was a throne room of good works, I'd never get there. If it was a throne room of my own righteousness, I'd never make it. But thank God that it's a throne room of grace and a lost sinner that's been saved by the grace of God and redeemed, he can go into the throne room because it's a throne room of grace. And then in Revelation chapter number 4, we see a throne room of glory. It's a place where the glory of God is magnified and manifest in the eyes of a preacher by the name of John as he's in the Isle of Patmos in exile. I'm thankful that uh, all through the Word of God... You know something interesting? Just let me get warmed up to you and you get warmed up to me this morning. It's so cold. We all got to thaw out. Amen? But you know that the word throne is found more times in the book of Revelation than anywhere else in the Word of God? Say, preacher, what does that tell you? That tells me this, that the person that had the throne at the beginning of the book still has the throne at the end of the book. That tells me that though kingdoms have risen, kingdoms have also fallen. tells me that the world's empires will crumble and the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdoms of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that can unseat Him from His throne. See, you get all the way back to the book and you find a throne there and He sits upon it. I'm thankful for the throne room of the glory of God. This morning, I want to preach to you for a few moments out of Isaiah chapter number 6. And I want to preach to you about the throne room of guidance. You know, there's times in our life, and by the way, there's difference between advice and guidance. You know that? Uh, Humans can give you advice, but only God can give you guidance. So what do you mean? Well, guidance is when somebody can guide you through it. He's already been through it and been to the other side. He knows what's going to happen. I can give you advice on how I think it's going to go, but He can guide you according to how He knows that it's going to go. Isaiah the prophet has entered into a time of political, spiritual, and personal turmoil. And in the midst of this time, God calls him into the throne room to give him a fresh glimpse of heaven 
and a fresh glimpse of what he needs to do. Isaiah chapter number 6, and let's begin reading in verse number 1. Word of God says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Let's read verse number 1 once more, and then we'll pray. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for this day. I thank You for the privilege of this cold, chilly day, Lord, that we can wake up and serve You. I thank You for the heat that we had in our houses and in our cars. I thank you for the health that we had to make it to your house this morning. I thank you for the warmth that we have in this building and the luxury and leisure that we feel as as we sit here upon carpeted floors and padded pews. And we've come this morning, there's so many that have had to go through so much to worship. Oh, Lord, teach us to be more grateful for what we have. Lord, I want to ask that this morning you'd speak to each heart. Lord, as you've prepared this message in my heart, I do not know who it's for. But I'm thankful that you know all things and you know who needs it. So, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to each heart. If there's any amongst us that are in need of Christ's salvation, just as we were before we were saved, I pray that you'd show them that you love them, show them that your son died for them, show them that there's a way made, show them they can be saved today. Lord, I pray that in all things you gain the glory. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As we read in Isaiah chapter number 6, I've always been astounded by this passage of Scripture because Isaiah has been five chapters already, a prophet and a preacher in Israel. Now he comes to chapter number 6 and he sees the Lord for the first time. What does that tell you and what does that tell me? It tells me that a lot of times we can serve without ever really seeing. We can go through the motions without really having a vision of what the Lord has called us to do and expects out of us. But let me say that it tells me a second thing, that seeing the Lord is a dire necessity if we're going to serve God. You'd be amazed what can be solved when you get a fresh glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'd be amazed how different your life will look when you can see Him upon His throne, high and lifted up. You'd be amazed how small your problems would look next to a big God like Him. You'd be amazed how minuscule your sufferings will seem next to the cross of Calvary and the finished work of Christ. 
What we really need this morning is we need to go into this same throne room. You may be here today and you may be kind of like Isaiah was in the midst of a turmoil. You're saying, preacher, I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to solve it. I don't know how to make things better. Well, can I invite you for a few moments with me and Isaiah into the throne room? And let's take a look at the Lord and see if the Lord will do for us what He did for Isaiah. I want us to notice a few things about this throne room this morning. I'm going to try to preach quick because I've got a lot. Amen. I want us to notice first off the king of this throne room. Now you say, whoa, wait a minute, preacher. You're jumping the gun awful quick, aren't you? I mean, just as a preacher, homiletically, the king should be the last thing you talk about. He's the climax of the sermon. Oh, no, friend, because what we find is the second that Isaiah walks into the throne room, the first thing he sees is not the beauty and splendor of the environment. The first thing he sees is not the seraphims flying above the throne. The first thing he sees is not the altar with red-hot glowing coals upon it. But the first thing that the mind's eye of Isaiah is drawn to when he enters into the throne room of God is the throne and Him that sits upon it. Let me say this, when we fall in love with Jesus Christ, we notice Him first. We notice Him before we notice what we want. Now, if you're not in love with Jesus Christ, it don't happen that way. If you're, if you're not in love with Jesus Christ, you'll notice yourself first. You'll notice your obligations, your priorities first. You'll notice your family first. You'll notice everything. But when you fall in love with Jesus Christ, you'll notice Him before you notice anything else. Now, Isaiah notices the king before he notices anything else. Now, you might say, preacher, what is the significance of verse number 1? Let me say that, that uh, Isaiah went... I might say John occasionally, amen, because I've been studying all of them. Let me say that Isaiah went out of his way to tell us when this took place. He says this. Notice the first phrase. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, also the Lord, sitting upon a throne. Now you might say, well, preacher, what does that mean to me? Who is Uzziah and what is his significance? If you study through the Old Testament kings, you'll find that after the nation of Israel split into two nations, there were the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes, you'll find that the northern tribes never had nary a single good king. I mean, from Jeroboam, the one that, under whose leadership they, uh, they seceded from the nation of Judah, all the way down uh, to the very last one, that was Topeka, that was taken into captivity uh, by Tiglath-Pileser. Every single one of them was a wicked king. Now, the nation of Judah, they had sort of a mixture. They'd have a good king for a little while, and then they'd have a bad king. They'd have a good king, and he'd do that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And then they'd have maybe his sons would come to the throne. They would have grown up in religion, but they never let religion get into them, and they would begin to do wickedly. And in the vast history of these two nations, and particularly in the nation of Judah, I'd say to you that Uzziah the king was probably, aside from Solomon and David, the greatest king that Israel ever had, or the southern two tribes of Judah. Let me read to you, and I normally don't do this, but let me read to you what one commentator said about it. In Judah, Uzziah, and he's also known as Azariah, became king when the country was at its lowest ebb. A vigorous leader, he swiftly took steps to recover the fallen fortunes of his kingdom. Uzziah reorganized the army, invented new instruments of war, and pushing southward to the Red Sea and eastward to the coast, crushed the Philistines. He also built towers on the frontier facing the desert in order to cow the nomads into subjection. All his efforts were combined with a determination to do that which was right in the sight of the Lord. 
Isaiah grew up around the palace. Isaiah grew up around royalty. Uzziah had already been on the throne for a little while, probably when Isaiah was born. All he had ever known to this point in his life was this gracious and magnificent king, Uzziah. The greatest king that had been in the southern kingdom of Judah and probably the third greatest in the entire history of the nation of Israel. I mean, you can imagine how young Isaiah was when he saw this aged king walk through the marketplace or walk through a royal procession. He saw the dignity. He saw the majesty. He saw the righteousness in the furrowed brow and in the gray head of this old king. And now, all of a sudden, the nation of Israel, its future, its power, its security, is spiraled into question and instability with the death of this king. Jotham, his son, would precede him to the throne, and Jotham did fairly well uh, at being the king. And after him... Uh, would uh, be the king Manasseh. Manasseh did wickedly uh, in the sight of the Lord. In fact, he's probably the most wicked king that Judah ever had. No doubt Isaiah knew that troublesome times lay on the horizon. You say, preacher, what does all that mean to me? Well, now, with that in mind, let's read it again. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, notice this little word, also. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. I notice three things that he says about this king. And can I say, first off, he notes the consistency of this king and of this throne. He said, preacher, what do you mean? You can imagine how shaken he felt. You can imagine that he felt that his entire world was unraveling. You can imagine how he groaned within himself, how he worried, how he fretted over the future of his kingdom. He says, oh, that there might be a godly man upon the throne. Oh, that we might have a king that would do righteously. Oh, the throne has been vacated. Jotham is ascending. Will he do what his daddy has done? Will he do righteous? Will he do the right thing? And then in a moment, the Lord draws him into the throne room and says, Isaiah, it doesn't matter who is vacated that throne on earth. It doesn't matter who is ascending to the throne on earth. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter what your problems are. There is a throne in heaven where a king sits. And he's not leaving that throne. He says, I saw Uzziah upon the throne, and I saw him leave the throne. But he says, I saw also the Lord upon the throne. Notice the second thing, the character of the king. He says what? High and lifted up. I'm sure he had a pretty high opinion of Uzziah. I don't know that, but I, I assume he probably did. Uzziah had basically only one uh, stain upon his name throughout his entire rule. He, uh, God prospered him, and God blessed him, and God used him, and he got to a point where he was strong, and he tried to merge the kingdom, the throne rather, and the priesthood together. In fact, if you study what took place, he used to be known as Azariah. And he tried to merge the priesthood and the the king's office together. And he went into the temple and he took the censer from the priest and he tried to offer upon uh, the altar uh, burnt incense and God struck him with leprosy in that very moment. Two things happened in Uzziah's life at that moment. One, he became a leper until the day that he died. And two, his name was changed to Uzziah. Azariah means the Lord hath helped. But Uzziah means the Lord is my strength. You say, what's the difference, preacher? Heretofore, his name had dictated and denoted the idea, oh, yes, the Lord has helped me. 
But the Lord helped him till he got strong, and then he started to depend on himself. Now this leper king that is living in the shadows, this leper king uh, that is living with uh, the stain of sin and reproach upon his life, he takes the name Uzziah, saying, I'll never again depend on my own strength. I'll never again depend on my own ability. The Lord is my strength. He and He alone can keep me where I need to be. You can imagine what that did to Isaiah when he saw that take place. You remember, you've had times in your life, you remember that time when that person you had put on that pedestal fell off? You remember when that happened? Maybe it was a preacher that you knew. That's the only problem with us preachers. We're too fat to get up on a pedestal. People keep trying to put us up on there occasionally. Then they get disappointed when we make mistakes. Can I tell you something? I'm just as sinful and flesh as you are. I always will be. That's just the reality of it. Maybe you remember that time when that person that you loved and admired and had sat up upon that pedestal fell off. You remember when all of a sudden the light of reality was shined upon the darkness and wickedness of their failures. You imagine and remember how disheartening that was. You can see Isaiah feeling like he doesn't even know what he believes anymore. He's had all the confidence in the world in Uzziah. But now Uzziah's sin. What will that mean for him and his ministry? Then God gives him a glimpse of somebody. Can I say this? We'll never see him as the dearest friend until we see him as high and holy. We'll never see him as the dearest friend until we see him as high and holy. You know why young young people talk about Christ being a friend to them more than anybody else, but very rarely do they stick when it comes to the spiritual. I hope they do. They ought to. They should. But very rarely. We see a lot of young people falling. You know why? Because they want that relationship with him as friend before they acknowledge him as high and holy. You'll, you'll never be friends with him until you agree with him that your sin is sin and unrighteousness. He's not going to change his opinion about your sin. You're going to have to change your opinion about your sin. And so he sees Uzziah and he's failed and he's messed up, but now he catches a glimpse of someone that doesn't mess up. He catches a glimpse of someone that always does what needs to be done. He catches a glimpse of someone that will never try to intrude where he shouldn't intrude because there's not a place that doesn't belong to him. He, he catches a glimpse of someone that will never be degraded in the eyes of Isaiah because he can't be degraded. He catches a glimpse of somebody that will never fall from a pedestal because he's not on a pedestal, he's on a throne, and it's a rightful throne. He sees the character of the king. But let me say that he sees the confidence in the king. Notice what it says, and his train filled the temple. You say, well, that's interesting. I didn't even know the Lord had a train. (laughs) What it means is the idea of his robe or his vesture filled the temple. There's a lot of things we can say about that, but can I just say one thing about it? Some of you are saying, oh, I hope he does just say one thing about it. Can, Can I just say this? Uzziah was struck a leper because he tried to be a king and a priest. But now Isaiah sees a king that is a king and a priest. You know what Uzziah was trying to do? He was trying to meet every need within himself. He was a good king. He was a great king. He was a gracious king. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better king, but he wasn't a priest. Can I say this? I'm thankful that no matter how many kings have lived, the Lord Jesus Christ is still the king of kings. No matter how many prophets have risen and fallen and been slain, he's still the prophet of prophets. But can I say that no matter what our spiritual needs are, He's still our great high priest. Now Uzziah meets a king that can meet, or Isaiah meets a king that can meet every one of his needs. The first thing he sees is the king in the throne room. 
The second thing he sees is probably the first thing that carnal people like us would see. He sees the creatures of the throne room. He first sees a king, high and holy, lifted up. And then as he looks up at that king, as he stands awestruck at the majesty and greatness of this king, he catches a glimpse above that king and sees seraphim, as the Bible calls them, flying above him. Notice what it says about him. Look at verse number 2. The Bible says, Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. Notice their description. I found something pretty interesting as I studied what a seraphim is. A seraphim is an angelic creature uh, with six wings. It's always connected with, with the altar of God, and it's always connected with the holiness of God. But I found this out. I thought, boy, that's a funny name, seraphim. And I found out what it means. you know what a seraphim literally, what that word means? It literally means a fiery serpent. You say, preacher, that don't mean anything to me. Well, if you read the book of Numbers, it would. Because in the book of Numbers, the Bible tells us of a time uh, when the Lord commanded Moses uh, to make a serpent upon a, a brazen pole and a brazen serpent and to set that serpent up in the camp. Because of their murmuring and their complaining and their unrighteousness, God had sent fiery serpents throughout the camp of the children of Israel. And whenever a, 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 an Israelite was bitten by one of these snakes, it was a fatal bite. And the only thing that could make a difference, the only thing that could help, was they had to look up to that brazen serpent. And only through looking could they live. Those fiery serpents were a reminder of their sinfulness. They were a reminder of their wickedness. They were a reminder of the fact that they had intruded into God. They were a reminder that they in and of themselves were insufficient. And, and I think it's interesting that in the throne room of God, hey, listen, they ain't going to preach on this at the, at the latest big contempo conference that they're going to have down at the Colosseum. But can I just tell you this morning that when Isaiah looked into the throne room, he didn't see something that made him feel warm and fuzzy. He didn't see something that affirmed that his best life was now. He didn't see something that affirmed that if he'd just do his best and do good works, he'd make it and he'd be all right. When he looks into the throne room of God, he sees a holy God and he sees fiery serpents telling him, Isaiah, you're not enough, you're not sufficient, you're unrighteous, you cannot come into this throne room. Notice their description, but notice their declaration. What did they say? Did they say, welcome in, Isaiah, good to have you? No. Did they say, come as you are, leave as you came? No, they didn't. In fact, they didn't have anything to say about Isaiah at first. As he enters into the throne room, what do they say? Verse 3, and one cried unto another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So why did they say it three times? Well, I'll give you two answers to that. One, because He's that holy. He's that holy. Once wouldn't do. See, if He said it once, then, then He'd think that we meant holy like somebody else. If He had said it twice, then we would have thought He meant holy like we are. He says it three times. There's no mistaking. He's holy, holy, holy. But I think He also says holy for each person of the Trinity. I think He's saying that He's a holy Father. I, and, <laughs> not a holy Father like in Rome either. Hey man, not a holy Father like in Rome, but a real holy Father. And He's a holy Son. 
we have this picture of Jesus, like he and and I've, I've joked he, he's like the, the the hippie snowboarding extreme mountain dew drinking Jesus. You know, that, that's how the world wants us to see him. Can I remind you that even when he was the meek Galilean, he was holy and separate from sinners. I'm thankful he's a friend to sinners. He was a friend to me. Don't you think for one moment he ever compromised his holiness to be a friend to sinners? Don't you think for one moment that he ever, through his permissiveness or through his, uh, through, through his allowing of sin, condoned sin? He always rebuked sin and called sin what it was. Uh, he was a friend of sinners, not a friend of self-righteous. The sinner, hey, it don't matter how bad your sin is, if you still think it's okay, that makes you self-righteous. You may be so drunk that you can't even stumble up and tie your shoes, but if you think that's okay, you're self-righteous. We have the idea that the only folks that are self-righteous is the Sunday morning church crowd that are doing something sinful in secret. Can I remind you that the prostitute that chooses to live in prostitution and doesn't care what anybody thinks, she's self-righteous. Can I remind you that the, that, that the drug addict that refuses to see that the dope is wrong and refuses to see that their life is a wreck, they're self-righteous. Can I remind you that the drunkard that still runs to his bottle is self-righteous because he's saying what I think and what I believe and what I choose to do myself is good enough. It's good enough. He was never a friend of the self-righteous, but once a sinner would acknowledge they were a sinner, would acknowledge that their sin was destroying them and would need deliverance, he'd say, oh, I'll be a friend to you. I'll be a friend to you. If you're willing to repent, I'll be a friend to you. If you're looking for help, I'll be a friend to you. But even in his earthly ministry, he was holy and separate from sinners. Let me say that the Holy Spirit is holy. Holy Spirit is holy. The Holy Spirit will never drive you to do anything carnal. Ever. You know part of the problem? We've, we've got some... <laughs> oh, Lord, help me say this right. We've got some that want to make a, fl- a show in the flesh and call it spiritual. And then there's some, listen now, that are so afraid that someone's going to make a show in the flesh that they quench the Spirit. Can I just show you where the Word of God falls in all that? God's not the author of confusion. Am I right? But also where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. In other words, if God's in it, it'll be right. I'm not afraid of anything. Hey, my flesh may be afraid of what the Holy Ghost might tell me to do, but my spiritual man's not afraid of what the Holy Ghost might tell me to do. He's not going to ask me to do anything that'd bring reproach to the name of Christ. He's not going to ask me to do anything that'd be carnal or fleshly or wicked. Oh, it, it might be an embarrassment to my flesh, but it won't be fleshly because He's holy in all that He does. Most of the people that talk the most about being filled with the Spirit are filled with sin the most. Ooh, boy. I'm going to leave that down there and come up here. Most, most people, the charismatic movement wants to talk more about being filled with the Spirit. They won't talk about the Corinthian church. Corinthian church, they may have had tongues, but they also had such wickedness as was not named amongst the Gentiles. I'm just saying this, the Holy Spirit's holy. And He blesses a holy life. And he blesses a holy church. And he blesses a holy Christian. I think he was declaring the thrice, the tri, uh, the, the thrice-fold, threefold holiness of God. But then notice a third thing. Notice their display of power. When they cried out, when they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. Verse 4 says, And the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, there's a lot of things we could say about that. 
But can I just take a glimpse at Isaiah's life? I never thought about this until I studied this passage. I'm trying to be Isaiah, you understand, as I read this passage. I mean, I'm not Isaiah, I never will be, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to stand where he stood and see what he saw and think what he may have thought. We always talk about when we come to this verse of Scripture how the, the, the power of God is able to shake things. We talk about the, the Philippian jailer and the prison that was shaken. And I believe there's some truth to that. Don't misunderstand me. But you know what God brought to my mind as I read this? Isaiah ministered during the reign of King Uzziah. Listen to what it says in Zechariah 14.5. This is prophetic, and it says, And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. The same way that God is pointing back to Uzziah and saying, Isaiah, if you thought Uzziah was a king, just get a glimpse of me. If you thought Uzziah was righteous, just get a glimpse of me. If you thought Uzziah could meet the needs of the nation, just get a glimpse of me. I kind of think also that the Lord's pointing back to an earthquake and saying, Isaiah, if you thought that was an earthquake, you just wait till the Lord roars out of Zion. You just wait till the judgment hammer of God strikes its blow upon this nation. Uzziah or Isaiah, if you think that that was a shaking, just wait till my holiness is made plain. Can I say this? There is a day when the Lord will roar out of Zion. There's a day coming when the judgment of God will... Hey, you've got to bear with me. I've been reading the book of Joel, man. I'm ready to preach on the day of the Lord. Amen? There's a day coming when God will strike the judgment blow on this world. If we think that that earthquake was something... Me and Brother Kerry was talking about the earthquake that happened. He had some kind of earthquake in, in Anderson County about a year ago or something. I, I don't live in Anderson County. I didn't feel it, you know. And earthquake, when we talk about earthquakes, you know, it's like northerners listening to us talking about snow. <laughs> if, you, if you talk to somebody that lives in California, that, you know, but we're talking about, hey, we think this world has seen judgment. We think a tsunami hits and we think this world has seen judgment. God, God, God just takes his, his royal toilet brush and wipes Louisiana off the map and we think we've seen judgment. Let me tell you something, this world hasn't seen judgment yet. This world hasn't seen judgment yet. You say, oh, but preacher, what about the great flood? Can I tell you there's a flood of a different type that's coming? Can I say that before God sent a flood to judge this world, that next the God of the flood is coming to judge this world? Can I say that the thrones of this world are going to crumble into dust before His crown? Says Isaiah, you think that was an earthquake? Let me show you an earthquake. And he shakes the doors of the temple. We've seen the king of the throne room and the creatures, but I want you to notice the conviction of the throne room. Look at verse 5. The Bible says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Notice his statement. This is important. You say, Why? Because Isaiah just spent five chapters pronouncing woe on everybody else. Nine times in the first five chapters he uses the term woe, and not a single woe is about Isaiah. He looks at the nation of Israel and he says, Woe unto you! Woe unto you! Woe unto you! And can I just say this? When we get real humility is when the presence of God drives us to a proper understanding of ourselves. 
That's real humility. Real humility is not, is not uh, will worship. Real humility is not uh, self-degradation. Real humility is when, when seeing the power and presence and righteousness of God puts us in our proper place and perspective. Now, all of a sudden, he's not looking at anybody else. You say, why? Nobody else is in the throne room with him. The nation isn't in the throne room with him. And so the first person he looks at, he says, woe is me. Woe is me. We see his statement, but notice the scope of this conviction. First he says, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. Can I make a quick comment on that? I probably can. I don't know if anybody will stop me, but I will. You say, why did he say unclean lips? The lips were his tool and instrument of profession. He was a prophet. He had just spent five chapters uttering prophecies. And now all of a sudden Isaiah realizes it's not that the prophecies were undone. It's that he was undone. Can I say this, that, that if, if we could see our service the way God sees our service, it might not look as good to him as it does to us. He says, I'm undone. What's he saying? He's saying, I thought everything was okay. I thought I had done right, but turns out I'm undone. My lips are unclean. The very things I was using to prophesy, I may have been doing the will of God, but I may have been doing it for myself. I may have been doing the will of God, but I may have been doing it with the wrong spirit or the wrong attitude. We see his statement, and then we see his scope. He says, for I dwell in the midst. What does it say? Of a people of unclean lips. He says, I, he takes an inward look, and he says, I'm unrighteous. Then he takes an outward look and he says, I see that the people are unrighteous. You know what, you know what being in the throne room will do for you? It will make you disgusted with the sin of society. Can I give you just a little... This is, this is a personal opinion. Is that, I hope that's okay. You know how the devil gets people to acclimate to sin? He makes it funny. That's how he does that. You'll find that all the things that right now in society a Christian turns on the television and they're disgusted by it, 20 years ago there was someone making it funny first. All of a sudden, you remember, some of you remember, uh, there was a time when you never saw uh, two homosexuals on the television. You never saw two. And then someone came along that a lot of y'all are watching every day. If I, if I, really, I don't want to know. Don't tell me. I prefer not to know. But a lesbian, a reprobate, godless, ungodly lesbian came along by the name of Ellen DeGeneres. And she made it funny. And you laughed at it. And you're still laughing at it. There was a time when adultery was wrong and it was a sin. You remember that? Quaint notion, I know. But you remember that. Then the very president of the United States, the very president, don't get upset with me now. You may like his politics, but even he admitted he had done it. Committed adultery in the White House. And then, then the, the too late for prime time crew got in on it. You know what I'm talking about. They got in on it on Saturday nights. Mr. Leno, Mr. Letterman got in on it. And they got America to laugh. Now, all of a sudden, we don't even expect anything as far as morals out of the person that's elected to the highest country office in this country. I'm saying this. If the devil can get you to laugh at it, he's got you. 
He's got you. If He can get you to laugh at it, He's got you. You say, what does the throne room do, preacher? It takes the humor out of sin. Oh, yeah, be a stick in the mud, but I'd rather be a righteous one. I'd rather be a biblical one. If He can just get us to laugh at it. Isaiah says, oh, I was pronouncing judgment on everybody, but now I pronounce it on myself. And he says, now I really see. Now I really see. It's not just the outward sin, but they're people of unclean lips. Notice the comparison. What does he say? For mine eyes have seen the king. For mine eyes have seen the king. Let me say that we'll never hate sin the way God hates it until we see God the way that He is. We'll always make excuses for sin until we see God the way God is. It's not that we need to see sin the way God sees it, because we can't see sin the way God sees it until we see God the way that God is. Until we see Him high and lifted up like Isaiah did, we'll never see sin as lowly and putrid. You know why it was that God used Elijah? Because God hated, or Elijah hated sin the way that God hated sin. You say, how did Elijah know that? Because Elijah knew God the way God was. Elijah didn't try to shoehorn God into his perception of what God ought to be. Can I say this? I, I guess I will. <laughs> I'm thankful that the Lord will save anybody, aren't you? But can I say this? I, I don't believe God predestined some to heaven and some to hell. If you believe that, you're wrong. I don't believe that. And the Bible doesn't teach that. But I don't reject that because I don't have the stomach for it. You know what I mean? I don't reject that because I don't have the stomach for it. I don't reject that because God has to fit it within the the, the predetermined uh, uh, boundaries of what I think is fair. If If the Bible presented God that way, that's the way God would be. The Bible doesn't present him that way. The Bible says he tasted death for every man. But listen, I don't believe in a whosoever will salvation because my stomach's too weak to believe God could or couldn't. God never said he did, and that's why I reject it. Can I say this? God is who God is, whether we like it or not. Whether we think it's fair or not. We've got to see God for who God is. Instead of trying to say, well, you know, I think my God's a little heavier on the side of forgiveness than most people think. God's who God is. Until you see Him for who He is, you won't see things right. We see His conviction. I like this. Look at this next thing. We see the cleansing of the throne room. I'm just going to touch on it and move on. But Look at verse number 6. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. Notice the initiator of the cleansing. Isaiah didn't go get the coal. Seraphim went and got the coal. Listen carefully. Isaiah didn't even ask the seraphim to go get the coal. The moment that he confessed his unrighteousness, it was as though God looked down and said, All right, go get him a coal from off the altar. Can I say that God does... It's not, we don't help God forgive us. We don't help God forgive us. Our confession is not our, our facilitating God's forgiveness of us. Our confession is not us helping God forgive us. God is fully capable of forgiving us in and of Himself. He requires that we confess. But once we've confessed, before we've even, listen, before we've ever said a thing, you know the Bible says if we confess our sins, it doesn't say if we confess our sins and ask forgiveness. It says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
He said, Preacher, are you against us asking God for... No, I'm not against us asking God for forgiveness. I think we ought to ask God to, to forgive us. The Lord's Prayer, uh, he, he taught the disciples how to pray, and He said, uh, told them to, to pray and say, Forgive us this day our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass. I'm not opposed to that, but I'm merely saying this. If we'll just confess our sin and call it what it is, God's already on His way with the coal from the altar. That's all that's needed. Notice the initiator of this cleansing, but notice the instrument. The seraphim goes and gets a coal from off the altar. That tells me two things. It tells me, one, there was an altar. There was an altar. The book of Hebrews says that the Old Testament things were patterned after heavenly things. There was an altar. At this point, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world had not yet taken his place on the cross. And the blood had not yet been applied to the heavenly mercy seat. So there was an altar tells me a second thing. This altar was in use. I, I don't, I'm not a physicist, but typically a coal ain't, ain't, is, is not hot and red and glowing unless it's on fire. You don't have to pull it off with tongs unless it's on fire. So that tells me that at this time there was an altar and that altar was in use. And there's two things that the angel says. The angel says, notice the impunity that takes place. He says that thy sins have been purged. Let's read it. I don't want to misquote it. Look down at verse number 7. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. He says it is two separate things. Do you know why that is? That word for purge, it has the idea of expiated. The idea that there's been a payment that's been made. The idea that you have been cleansed and there's been a sacrifice that's been given. And so it's as though the the seraphim goes, grabs the coal from off the altar, lays it upon Isaiah's lips and says, Isaiah, your iniquity has been taken away because your sins have been purged and points to the altar. Let me say that for the believer, it's the same process today. Christ isn't still on the cross. Catholics got that wrong. He's not still on the cross. But when we come to the Lord and, 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 and we confess our sins, you know what He does? He comes to us and He takes just a taste of that sacrifice. You remember when they, when they gave the Passover, they had to eat of the bitter herbs. You say, what was that significant of? That, that, that signified their contrition. I'm sure it probably hurt when he laid that coal on Isaiah's lips. That speaks of the bitterness and the contrition. We get a little taste of that. We get a little taste of what it, what it means to know that our sin put him on the cross. We get a little taste of, of, of what it means to know that it was our unrighteousness that placed him there, that it's our wickedness that caused his death and his crucifixion, that it's at our feet that our sin lays and that we're the reason for the cross of Calvary. We get that little burn and that little bitterness. And then the Lord points back to a rugged cross and says, Thine iniquity has been taken away. Thy sins are purged. Notice not only the cleansing, but notice the commission. I'm done. I promise you. Notice the voice of this commission. It's the first time in the whole thing that the Lord speaks. Up until verse number 8, He hasn't said a thing. The seraphims have spoken... Isaiah has spoken, but the Lord has been silent. What's the first thing the Lord says? The Lord says, who shall I send? Who shall I send? He said, what's God looking for? 
out of my life, preacher. He's looking for you to lay yourself down and volunteer. He's looking for somebody to send. It's interesting because Isaiah has already been a prophet for five chapters. Evidently, Isaiah hadn't been getting the job done in some respect. But now, this new Isaiah, you see the voice of the commission, but you see the volunteer of the commission. Isaiah says, here am I, send me. I've told this illustration before, but you know, one thing you learn real quick when you deal with people, and people come to me all the time, and they'll say, hey, I need a favor. And I've kind of learned to not just say, yeah, sure, what do you need? You always say, what is it, before you agree to it, right? That's smart. I'm just telling you, dealing with people, that's smart. Because sometimes you'll come to them and and, and, or they'll come to you, they'll be like, hey, I need a favor. And you'll say, yeah, sure, what is it? And they'll say, well, I just need to ride down the road. And sometimes they'll say, I need my whole house moved. Can you come help me, you know? And that's fine, but, I mean, you need to know what you're getting into. The Lord says, who shall I send? Isaiah doesn't say, send for what, Lord? What will it entail, Lord? Do you have an itinerary? Is there a sign-up sheet? He says, whom shall I send? Isaiah says, right here, right here, here am I, send me, send me. Notice the vision of this commission. He says, go and tell this people. Now, Isaiah had a very unique ministry because God in his, in his foreknowledge, God in His sovereignty had already determined that the nation of Judah was going to be carried away into captivity. And so he says, go and tell this people. It says their hearts are going to be hardened, their eyes are going to be blinded. And the Lord says that must happen for my will to take place. But can I give you some good news this morning? The commission that God gives you and I is not quite so bleak. Can I, can I, add to, can I just, just smush two passages of Scripture together? That's dangerous to do. I'm not recommending you doing it, but you trust me this morning. Whom shall I send? Here am I, send me. Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. We're going to some, some won't listen, some won't hear. Oh, but every now and then, every now and then, there'll be that one that we reach, and they will listen, and they will hear. There's still a go in gospel. There's still sinners to be reached. There's still a gospel to be preached. There's still love to be shown. There's still souls that need to be rescued from their perishing. Say, preacher, I don't feel like going much. Well, maybe you and I need to take a trip in the throne room because I feel that way sometimes too. Preacher, it doesn't seem to do much good. I've been witnessing. I've been praying. It doesn't seem to accomplish anything. Well, why don't you just take a trip in the throne room and ask God to give you a fresh vision and a renewed spirit and a new strength? I'm thankful this morning that when we have these times of turmoil, I'm thankful when the thrones have been vacated that there's a higher throne we can look to. When we feel discouraged, there's a place of encouragement we can go. When we have a problem that we can't solve, there's a place of guidance where we can get answers. I wonder why you need to go into the throne room this morning. I know somebody does, because the Lord don't do these things for no reason. I wonder who this morning needs to make a trip into the throne room. I wonder who needs to find their way to this altar and ask God to give them the strength that they need or to give them wisdom 
We're to give them encouragement. Can I say there's an open door and an open invitation? I want you to come.